Welcome to the 404th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski back to COVID Calls for the second time. She's the author of High Risk, Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected. As a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 31st, 2022, I'm going to give some statistics that are current according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the country of Morocco, 63.5% of the population is fully vaccinated. The United States reporting 64.5%, India 51.6%, and South Africa 28.4%. Fully vaccinated for COVID-19, that's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, the COVID killed droves of Indian health workers. Their families must fight for recompense. This was written by Varsha Torgalkar and David Pearson and appeared January 18th, 2022 in the Los Angeles Times. Stateline Pune, India. Amanjit Singh's father, a family doctor, was ordered to reopen his clinic as early cases of COVID-19 were spreading in Mumbai. Within days, his father, gasping for oxygen at home, was dead. Two days later, so was his mother. Left to fend for himself, the 17-year-old Singh set out to collect the compensation the government promised family members of health workers killed by COVID-19. For nine months, he had to navigate the depths of Indian bureaucracy, sidestepping lockdowns, winning police approval to visit government offices and the hospital to obtain his father's death certificate, proving he fell victim to the coronavirus. But in the end, it didn't matter. Singh was denied the $67,000 package because his father was dismissed as a private practitioner, not someone on the front lines of the pandemic. I have no energy to try again, said Singh. People can't understand what it's like to lose both your parents in just two days. India's health workers were lauded as corona warriors early in the pandemic. Millions of people across the country switched off their lights and put candles and lamps outside their homes in a national display of appreciation. The country's military conducted flybys, showering hospitals with flower petals. But the tributes ring hollow to a growing chorus of families fighting for compensation promised to doctors, nurses, hospital porters, and other medical workers who perished after contracting COVID-19. Relatives say the government scheme is being too narrowly applied to only staff at public COVID-19 facilities and discriminates against the legions of private sector workers who were drafted to fight the virus amid a crush of patients at government hospitals. COVID-19 is like war, said Dr. J.A. Jayalal, 
the former president of the Indian Medical Association, all doctors should be treated as soldiers. They should be given the status of martyrs for treating patients, he said. Struggle for compensation highlights the fragility of India's healthcare system as a new outbreak fueled by the arrival of the Omicron variant gathers momentum. The number of daily cases reported in India today is the highest since May, when the country was still reeling from an outbreak of the Delta variant that decimated cities and villages. Hundreds of doctors are already infected in Mumbai alone. More than 480,000 people have died of COVID-19 in India. This story, again, is from just over a week ago. A loss of life that's second only to the United States, but believed to be much higher because of underreporting. Experts are optimistic Omicron won't wreak havoc like Delta. More than half the country's adults are fully vaccinated. Oxygen is being stockpiled, and the central government isn't downplaying the risk of the disease like it did before. The two-year crisis has laid bare chronic problems with understaffing, low pay, and medicine shortages in the country's health facilities. Dismal working conditions have led to labor strikes, most recently last month, when thousands of overworked resident doctors demonstrated in New Delhi over delays in career advancement. Everyone is exhausted by the workload, said Dr. Manish Nigam, president of the Federation of Resident Doctors Association, describing 38-hour shifts for some young physicians. It's taking a toll on our mental and emotional well-being. India, the world's second most populous country with 1.4 billion people, spends only 3.5% of its gross domestic product on health, well below the global average of 9.8%. The ratio of doctors and nurses to patients in India is below standards recommended by the World Health Organization. Hospitals constrained by limited budgets have taken to offering short-term contracts to avoid having to offer insurance benefits. Half the posts are vacant, Jalandar Kumbar, age 53, said of the state-run Sassoon General Hospital in Pune, where he works as a porter. The administration keeps asking staff to work more and only hires workers on one- or two-month contracts. Four cleaners died of COVID and nobody received compensation. One of those cleaners was Sereka Baliero. The 52-year-old was sickened by COVID-19 for the second time in March and was admitted to Sassoon. She died within weeks, leaving behind a 22-year-old son who had to give up his job and earn a more steady income, give up his job as a photographer and earn a more steady income as a grocery store worker to support his aging father. Appeal to receive compensation has stalled for months. The Indian government launched a compensation scheme in March of 2020, promising to pay families of any public health worker or private medical professional requisitioned by the government for COVID-19-related responsibilities who died in the line of duty. Nita Panwar, president of the All India Government Nursing Federation, said the rules discriminated against nurses in private hospitals. PCR tests can take three to seven days, during which time patients with COVID symptoms would seek treatment in a private health facility, Panwar said. That's how health workers got infected. But because they were not officially on COVID duty, they're not eligible for the insurance. Mr. Singh's 52-year-old father, Ranjit Singh, closed his small clinic in April of 2020, as did many private general practitioners concerned at that time about getting infected. He reopened his doors after the local government, desperate to treat the growing number of patients, threatened police action against clinics that remained closed. For weeks, Ranjit Singh saw hundreds of patients with COVID-19 symptoms. 
Amanjit Singh is convinced that's how his father got sick and then passed the virus to his mother. Singh now lives with his maternal uncle. The second year culinary school student was denied a government program that covered college tuition for children of health workers who succumbed to the virus. He spent a week in a hospital because of a series of panic attacks triggered by the trauma of losing his parents. That void will never be cured, he said. Whatever I do, I keep thinking about what mom or dad would have said. Life will never be the same. The story was COVID killed droves of Indian health workers. Their families must fight for recompense. Appeared in the Los Angeles Times. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and it's a real thrill to have my guest back for the second time. Let me introduce her, Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski attended medical school at Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine in New York City. She finished her internship and residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the Integrated Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, followed by a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine. Dr. Karkowski continues to work as a high-risk obstetrics specialist in New York City, where she leads initiatives in outpatient care. She also writes frequently for public venues, including Slate, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and other outlets. And her first book appeared in 2020, High Risk Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected. Javi Karkowski, it's a real pleasure to have you back. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for those who might not have seen our uh, earlier call last year, maybe I can ask you if you don't mind, where you're calling from, and then also get an update on how the pandemic situation is looking there today. Sure. I live in New York City, and I work in New York City in some of the poorest zip codes in the United States, in the Bronx. Um, people think that OBGYNs only do happy things, and I'm so glad that so many people have that association with my job. But because I'm a high-risk OB specialist, I also take care of medically complex patients, which means that since the beginning, since... Um, March 2020, I've been taking care of a pretty impressive pregnant COVID service in the hospital and outside the hospital of patients who are sick with COVID and perhaps other things at the same time while being pregnant. Um, so very much front lines. I think we last spoke, we were sort of at the end of the first wave um, and I believe pre-vaccine. So things are significantly different now and, the, and yet not nearly as different as I'd like. Yeah, we spoke on um, March 17th, 2021, and I just went back and looked, and um, I don't know how reliable you find these numbers, but at that point, there were globally 2,672,645 deaths that day. Um, and, you know, I guess one thing I'd like to ask you, I have a lot of questions, but, um, you know, just in this last year since we spoke, has there been something that has left a lasting memory for you in this phase of the pandemic? I think personally, I'm really struggling, struggling really on a sort of existential level with vaccine hesitation, um, vaccine refusal, vaccine hostility. Um, there are ways in which it's really um, making it difficult to sort of believe in the work, not just do the work, but believe in the work um, and contributing to the the fatigue that I keep saying is cumulative. There are many ways in which I'm in a better situation than I was. Um, in 2020, I felt that real personal risk. I really thought I was going to get sick. And that if I did get sick, there wouldn't be a ventilator for me. Um, I thought that my children would get sick. I thought that my husband would get sick. Since then, my children and husband have gotten sick. I myself have remained free of COVID somehow, magically or um, 
not tested frequently enough, always, always a, a subjective decision. Um, I'm vaccinated. I feel relatively certain that I won't die of COVID, which is is really wonderful to feel. Um, but the costs of this, it turns out, aren't limited to just my personal physical safety, but to the sort of ongoing, ongoing in some ways drudgery or ask that it is of all of us and that I think we don't see a real end to at this point. I, I'm sorry to hear that your family was sick and I hope everybody's made a good recovery. Thank goodness everybody did very well. My 10-year-old daughter got the sickest and she is fine, thank goodness. Well, I'm, I'm sorry about that and I'm, I'm glad to hear about that. I'm glad to hear about the recovery. The, um, you know, when we talked, you mentioned the, you know, the context the last time. So we talked in March and um, at that point we were a year in then. And you were remembering um, what it was like to have to reuse supplies. You told me at that time that you had reused the same N95 mask, for example, for three weeks during the early part of the pandemic. Have, have you, you don't face scarcity like that at this point or does scarcity manifest in different ways? We are, we are less scarce for physical objects. We have the PPE that we need. Um, we have masks. In fact, if anything, I feel like my children almost have as much gear to go to school as I do to go to work these days. The gear has become, I think, so um, just it's everywhere, right? Um, in terms of just people really upping their game. My kids now need KN94s and I wear this almost the same ones to work. Um, I don't have that scarcity, which was really sometimes keeping me out of patient rooms. Like if somebody had just seen that patient, I would call the patient on the phone, which didn't feel good. Like that's not the kind of doctor I was trained to be. I was trained to always go to the patient bedside, lay hands on the patient. It was, it was confusing and disorienting for that to be the wrong decision in that setting. So we don't have that problem anymore. I think what we are lacking now is people, black humans, and that in some ways is harder to overcome. So how do you spend your time? What's the balance between the time that you spend in, in the clinic with seeing patients for what we might consider a, a regular visit, I guess, a scheduled visit versus seeing patients in the in the hospital? Can you break that down for me a little bit? I'm sure people are fascinated with somebody with your expertise, like how do you actually apportion the time you have? So I feel like I have the coolest job, the best job in the world, except on the days when it's the worst. And I spend some portion of time um, in the hospital. I'm on labor delivery, delivering babies, performing C-sections, performing other surgeries. I also spend outpatient time in ultrasound units where I uh, do fetal scans, diagnose anomalies. I spend a lot of times in my office seeing patients who have medical conditions that complicate their pregnancy, pregnancy conditions that complement their pregnancy, really anything that can happen to you can happen to you when you're pregnant. And if it does, that's my job. So it's, it's never boring. But for the last month, um, we've been on what we call COVID surge staffing, um, which means that I did two weeks outpatient and two weeks inpatient. Um, I also have a variety of sort of administrative managerial jobs, which somehow needed to happen in between those things, which has been a little bit ugly um, because I'm also trying to write protocols for my doctors to follow in the outpatient setting and trying to make sure that when we send patients home with COVID, we have appropriate follow-up. And that's all has to happen in between all the other things. So for the last two weeks, I've been doing sort of a four-day cycle of really just inpatient work, day, night, day, night, day, night, which frankly, I am too old for at this point in my life and has been honestly, physically and emotionally really, um, really 
taxing on me and and on my family. Um, it's come to an end as, as rates have gone down. My hospital has made the decision to undeploy people, bring people back to their usual site. And that means that I'm going to go back to my usual job. Um, but the cost is there um, and it's it's harsh. I think there are some ways in which we never really recovered from the first time we did this, even though it was more than a year ago. How many times have you had to do this surge staffing or is that a new terminology for what they're doing there? Um, this is really only the second time in my area and that's really going to be subjective, right? Every institution has a different threshold when they start to sort of pull all the levers and ring all the bells. This is our second time. I, I want to explain that it's not just a matter of working more than I usually work because I actually work a lot baseline and I have kids and everybody knows your kids know when you're not there and your kids know when you're stressed and your kids know when you're emotionally unavailable, right? So then I have kids at home maybe acting out a little more. Um, but I think the other part of it is that we canceled everyone's vacation and we told them they couldn't leave town. Um, this is almost a militaristic kind of experience with a job, which to be honest, the providers I work with and I help manage really stepped up for, um, but it is a cost. They all have partners or children or other things going on. And for us to ask them to ignore those for four weeks or five weeks is a lot. And I actually think that many of us found this COVID surge staffing to be in some ways more taxing because the first time around, everything was shut down, right? Kids weren't going to school. Nobody was really expecting anything else from us. We just had to keep the hospital running. That's all we had to do. And this time, um, life is largely going on. Our kids are going to school or doing school from home. Our partners are supposed to show up at work. So who's supposed to watch the kids? Um, it, it was really, really taxing in this way that um, really felt unsustainable for us. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski today. And one of the things, so I'd like to hear a little bit of an update from the patient perspective. When we talked last time, you described um, some of the modifications that you had to put in place, particularly in those first few months of COVID. Um, so women who might have uh, high-risk pregnancies, who might be used to coming into the office, um, and, and you described, and I've thought about this a lot since, you, since we talked, that um, people coming into the office who wanted to hear the fetal heartbeat, for example, and not being able to do that. And, and you pointed out when we talked then that that might not even be the best indicator of the health um, of the baby, but it's psychologically was important and people were denied that and you were I thought your you know the empathy of the patient experience was really tremendous um, how is it now I mean are, are patients able to see you or a doctor whenever they want to or you still have remote medicine have you made that transition like where are we in terms of that I just wish, by the way, that in the United States of America, we were at a point where you could just see a doctor whenever you wanted to. I wow, wish that was my baseline. Uh, my baseline is always access, access, access is so hard for my patients. It is very hard for me to meet demand. Um, just baseline, that's kind of the constant struggle. And honestly, right. for me, it's part of health equity is like you should be able to see a doctor when you need one. You should really be able to see your doctor when you need one. Um, and I don't think I'm that's not how most people on public insurance experience the world, unfortunately. Um, between surges, we went back to in-person medicine largely, and I can explain why there are ways in which telemedicine just doesn't do for, for my practice and for my kind of patients what it needs to do. Not just the therapeutic presence and listening to the baby's heartbeat, but we've also found that our providers can just see fewer patients per day. And when you are a practice that has more demand than doctors, then you have to, every doctor really needs to see as many patients as they can per day. So between surges, we went back to a fully in-person practice. 
as Omicron hit and as not only did we lose um, our ability to keep my own providers safe in the office, just with so much traffic in and out, but also I lost a lot of my staff, a lot of people who make the office run, secretaries, um, medical assistants, people who check you in, take your blood pressure, chaperone an exam that I otherwise really legally cannot do, disappeared. Some of them disappeared because they left medicine. Some of them disappeared because they were deployed to the hospital's surge, um, surge um, response. And, you know, that meant that we were doing more telemedicine and less supported, right? There's certain things I can take care of. And you could argue that I'm the important part of the visit, but I will also tell you that if I don't have a secretary who will make your next visit, it's kind of all going to go to waste, right? You're just going to get lost. So I'm really struggling with the lack of people on every level, nurses, clerks, techs, everything, um, including physicians, um, many of whom have been out with Omicron are coming back, but many of whom are making the larger decision to walk away from medicine for reasons that make a lot of sense to me. So just at a basic level, like just talking about the staffing issues, um, you can't get more people. It's it's not in the budget. Help me understand the, the sort of economy, the problem here of getting more. If people are leaving, why can't you get more people? I would love to get more people. I honestly, you'll laugh at me, but you know that this is something I would absolutely do. When I have a patient who has a chronic disease and she's handling it really well, like she's getting to a variety of really complex appointments. And I'm always like, do you want a job after this is all over? Because you have amazing executive function skills and we are 100% hiring. And I don't feel like it's a conflict of interest. I I am joking, but like, you know, it's true. I I will hire from my, from my waiting room because I think that that sort of awareness of how important it is and the ability to navigate the system are more important to me than any degree. Um, I think you're probably hearing this from all sorts of industries during the great resignation. I think, honestly, I have a lot of clerical staff where if they could get the same job working for a law firm, why wouldn't they, right? Less personal physical risk, probably less stress. I think the mission-driven aspect of it, feeling like you're really doing something important, means that I work with some of the best people in the world on all levels. Um, that really, the cumulative sort of you, you drain that account if you go to it for too long. So we are hiring. Everyone I know is hiring. As some people I know are having some success. I think there are fewer working age humans around. And I think a lot of them are not that interested in going into medicine. Um, and to be honest, I, for the last two years, I don't totally blame them. I, that's not my, that's not my pep talk, by the way. I can do better. No, that's a, uh, well, you give pretty good pep talk about hiring from the waiting room. That's, that's I don't know. You're, you're sort of, half in earnest around that, but, but is it just the case that, I mean, so for nursing, there's traveling, I mean, I've talked to nurses on COVID calls and there's sort of population of traveling nurses. That's not without its problem. It, that's not true for other kinds of staff who you might need in the hospital. I don't think there's traveling clerks and, and MAs and LPNs. Maybe there will be, maybe that will be an, an industry that we see pop up. Traveling all those travelers that has a lot of cost, right? I get contacted all the time to be a locums physician. People are looking for someone like me to come to, you know, the Midwest and do two weeks just so the one doctor they have could get a vacation. So I think that that there is that too, but I think the, the profound lack of human resources is just being felt at every level. Maybe there will be um, clerical locums. Um, maybe that will be something that we will learn to value to the point that there are companies built around it. Um, but right now, I don't see that. I see that people are really in transition a lot in their lives and um, and that transition has a lot of friction, right? So it means that there are a lot of empty jobs that even if they'll eventually be filled for the moment, that transition means that there's nobody in that seat. And have you had, I mean, people come to you and, and 
tell you that they're leaving or have you had to have those conversations to try to convince people or talk them through in the hopes that they will stay? Is that fall to you as well? I sometimes do. I do. I, I mean, I do really believe in the mission. I tell them that we have the most important job in the world and that our patients need us more than anybody else in the world. Um, and that that can be tremendously satisfying. I also am not in the business of making somebody stay somewhere that they're desperately unhappy. So that's not the kind of manager I've ever been. Um, you know, when I talk to physicians who I truly manage, not clerical staff or nurses for whom I'm less in the direct line of command, uh, we talk more about how can we make this something that works for them, right? Can we switch their balance of inpatient and outpatient? Can we find the thing that they love and be like, this is your career. You're going to be, you know, somebody who is really focused on education or really focused on the medical students are really going to, you know, move towards minimally invasive surgery as your thing. Um, but there's just a lot of really basic stuff that needs to get done every single day to keep the hospital safe. And we all have to do it. And a lot of us are doing it more than we really want to. And that burns people out. So early in the pandemic, you know, the, the kind of discourse that was going on is that, um, well, the hospitals would be overrun and therefore we'll well, somehow the military will get involved. There was always this sort of like sense that there's this kind of backstop that in, in the worst kind of situation, there's another medical emergency medical staff out there waiting to help us. And you're describing a, a world that that's not that's not reality. We did. You know, we had that ship that came. Do you remember this? It came yeah, to New York. That's what I mean. I, yeah. When they came, remember at first they were seeing non-COVID patients only. And we were like, what, what's the point of that? Right. Do you remember right. that? When like yeah. 89% of our emergency room was only COVID patients. I think the military, I have no idea what the military has. I think they must have a pretty extensive um, medical system. You can probably call it the National Guard. Once you call it the National Guard all the time, then you're not just calling up the National Guard anymore. Then we're living in a different kind of country and a different kind of military, right? So right. I think what we're dealing with is there was a surge. There's the Omicron surge. It's been pretty intense. But there's also the fact that we don't think this is going away when we get a vaccine anymore, right? So any decision we make really has to come from a place of can we do this forever? Or how can we create a way that this is sustainable? I want to point out that I work with people with varying degrees of education, right? I could probably take anyone from my waiting room and they could become a wonderful clerk if they're just somebody who's like really good at running their lives. To take, make them into a really good nurse would probably take us six years. To take, make them into a really good doctor would probably take 10. And to make them into a really good high-risk OB would probably take 15. And it only takes two weeks for someone to leave. So these were all investments that we needed 15 years, 10 years ago, six years ago, and, and now you're seeing the, the consequences perhaps of, of a longer term disinvestment. I mean, is that partially how you see it, that this is exposing a sort of lack of investment over, over time in staffing and training, or is this just really a special case? I think it's in some ways just really a special case. I think there's sort of in widespread, um, widespread um, people call it moral fatigue. People call it compassion fatigue. I think the word there is fatigue. People are tired. Um, and you can hear that I don't blame them, right? I'm tired too. Um, I think there's widespread disillusionment. It can be very, very painful to be in this work. Um, you know, I work in a pretty blue state. Um, and even so, I have a lot of patients with vaccine resistance. I cannot imagine what it might be like to feel like you're working nights and weekends and giving up your vacation and putting your own health at risk and your mayor or your governor or even the head of your hospital sort of doesn't have your back in terms of masks and vaccines. And so I think that that just really wears on you um, in ways that are not easy to get back. How do you manage the fatigue? 
Well, I, as I said to my children, I'm not at my shiningest moment this week. Um, um, I really feel that what's really hard for me is some of the rhetoric around vaccinations and masks is just truly exhausting, not just on a personal level, but in like a, are we as humans just really, really bad at taking care of each other, right? Like, are we, is the idea that our technology and our moxie and whatever else we think humans have will get us through any number of apocalyptic movies, it starts to feel more and more like fiction, right? Like we actually are just kind of super bad at following the science and paying attention to each other and doing what we need to for each other. And, and that is hurtful. Um, what is keeping me sort of going, and this is a much smaller view, is the people that I work with are some of the best people in the world. Um, I just had this conversation because we just had a huge snowstorm, right? And one of somebody who was new to my institution said to me, she's from the South, she's never experienced snow. Like this. She's like, what do I do? Is anyone going to come in in the morning? Am I just going to have to stay here for like four days? How's somebody going to get to work? And I said, you know, I worry about this every time. I worry about this every time. I get so anxious with the snow. People will get there within half an hour of their start time. You know why? Because they're really good people and they really try. Nobody says, oh, I couldn't make it in. I'm two hours late. Nobody does that. They know you're waiting. They know you need to go home. They get there. And you know what? I got there. I was only three minutes late and my relief got there less than half an hour late. And those are the good people. You know, we keep showing up for each other. Um, I don't know if that's enough for everybody. You know, that's a smaller, that's a smaller group to be there for, but I do work with really phenomenal people and I feel very grateful for that. You know, I've tried to resist the military metaphors as much as I can. I'm not sure they translate very well over to care. Um, but what you just described is sometimes how you hear soldiers talk about battle in that they commit to their unit and they're committed to the people that they're there with. So the ideology and the bigger picture and all that flag waving and whatnot falls apart. And it's really just about your commitment to the person you're standing next to, it seems to resonate with what you just said. Yeah, although I would say even those soldiers, right, then they have a moment to think about, well, then why are we here? Why are we at this war? Who put all these people I love in this situation? And right. then the whole thing sort of does sort of start to waver. Um, and similarly, I think without the larger mission, our ability to keep all those wonderful people doing their wonderful work does start to fall apart a little bit. Um, so I do think we have meaning in the work we do. I think we have meaning in the work we do for each other. Um, I think it's a more successful psychological model when we also don't feel like we're at the mercy of sort of society that doesn't seem to be willing or able to do what it needs to do to take care of each other and us. Does writing relieve your fatigue? I know that's a crazy question, but you've mm -hmm. somehow kept writing through this time as well. And I want to talk about some of that. It's so funny because I, I lead these writing seminars and in medicine, there's this real like stream of writing narrative medicine, like writing makes you more empathetic, writing helps you process. And I don't do that at all. Like I don't journal. If I don't have an audience, I don't write, which 
arguably makes me less of a good person, but it's just apparently who I am. And I've come to come to understand that. I think for me, writing is a way sometimes for me to make a, um, something that happened to me in the particular to tie it to a larger truth. And I think that makes me feel less, maybe less alone or less like I'm just being whiny or just having personal issues, but I can really understand it. This is probably very similar to the work you do with this and with academics, where if it's a part of the larger world, then we have a narrative that we can understand. And I think for many of us, that's tremendously therapeutic. We can take a deep breath, look at the story that we're in and feel like, okay, okay, this I understand, um, or at least I can see where it goes. Or even just to have um, that moment of perspective to say, I'm not in the end of the story. I'm in the really ugly middle of the story. The middle is ugly. Nobody likes the middle, right? Um, but that's why the author gets to decide where they end this, the book, right? So to have that tool that lets you curate um, your reality and lets you put it in the context of everybody else's reality and also maybe present it to them to say, this is what's going on with me. I want you to understand that your actions are part of that and my actions are part of yours. How does that change how we relate to each other. I think that for me, that's very powerful. Um, but I also, I also don't want my writing just to be a, a personal therapy session. I really, I need it to, to be less self-involved than that. I hope it is. Well, I think it's, you know, just to thank you for that description because it's, you have a unique vantage point on this disaster, a really unique vantage point. And you also have the sort of ability to sort of go one level up and sort of describe it as, as a landscape as well. And I'm, I'm referring here to a piece that you published uh, in the Atlantic titled Vaccine Refusers Risk Compassion Fatigue. So it's another dimension on this fatigue issue we were discussing. You, this appeared uh, late last summer in August, August 11th, 2021. I'm just going to read the first part. Um, we can talk about it, I hope. You write, on social media, I've been seeing sentiments that I never thought I'd see anyone express in a public forum. People who choose to be unvaccinated should not be offered lung transplants. What if people with COVID-19 who didn't get the vaccine have to wait in the emergency department until everyone else is seen? Should unvaccinated patients just be turned away? These are harsh, angry feelings, you write, and some of the people giving voice to them are doctors. I, that, I'm, that's staggering on the face of it. And at the same time, it's such a, it's a paragraph that comes from this time that I think it just, the context is so unique and horrifying. And I wonder if you can talk more about this idea of a compassion fatigue and particularly coming from an unexpected place. I mean, I think we were all raised, at least I was, to think doctors are wellsprings of compassion. That's what they do. As you said, they're driven to the mission. So the idea that they also might experience compassion fatigue is a startling notion, I think. I think um, one of the things that's happened during this pandemic is people started to think about healthcare as the same way you think about electricity or plumbing. It's a, it's a utility. Here we are. Um, I'm going to tell you that healthcare, but to be honest, probably plumbing also, and probably also electricity is made out of people. It's made out of people. Um, you know, I think the power dynamics of medicine are very interesting because when I am awake at two o'clock in the morning taking care of somebody, who really has power, right? On the one hand, I'm awake at two o'clock in the morning, possibly, you know, covered with blood or other bodily fluids. It doesn't look like I have power, but I do have power because if I said, um, you're not eligible for a lung transplant, that's a hugely powerful thing to say. And I wouldn't say that based on your vaccination status. But I also think we feel eminently powerless. I just had to ask 50 people to cancel their vacations and not see their children for two weeks 
because unvaccinated people were flooding my hospital. I think the way, I didn't say this in that piece, but one of the things I've been playing with and arguably because I've been watching The Good Place too much is I think there's an element of, of what we owe to each other, right? Now, any individual patient doesn't owe me very much at all and I don't want them ever to think that they do, right? I will take wonderful care of really anybody in the world if they're a drug addict, if they are a horrible person, I've taken care of people who've tried to punch me and pulled a knife on my staff, okay? And I've taken good care of them because it's not relevant. Um, but what we owe to each other, I don't get owed anything by any individual patient, but I think collectively it's arguable that society owes people who take care of other people some amount, some small amount of care, some small amount of intent, the willingness to maybe undergo a very small injection that will protect all of us and make the burden lighter. And I think we are, we are not getting what we are owed, if that makes sense. So any individual person doesn't owe me anything. You could not get a vaccine and I will still take really good care of you. I have yesterday and I will tomorrow. And I don't want any individual to think that I won't because I've gotten letters saying, you're the worst doctor ever. I will still take care of every single one of those individual patients. But I think collectively, what we are hearing is, I won't do even a small thing for you. And I do think just like a child or just like anybody else, what do we owe to each other? When you don't get the small amount that you're owed, I think it can be very poisonous. It's very, very hard to continue on when you feel so, like you ask for so little, you need just so little and you can't even get that. And to me, I do think that is sort of contributing to the to the fatigue and the depletion and the resignation, uh, both actual resignation from job, but maybe resignation in a more existential sense that we're seeing. I don't know, did that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. So I wanna go a little further with it because and, and if you don't mind me asking, you know, so, um, people's decision to get vaccinated. So, I mean, the, last year we were having conversations, a lot of vaccine hesitancy conversations really had to do about information and culture and history and availability. And, and we're kind of beyond that now, I think, in which it has also become politicized and people wearing their unvaccinated status as a sort of badge of personal ideology, political ideology. But that's really problematic if you're a caregiver. And so I wonder again, like how do you, how, when you try to make sense of someone who's not vaccinated, not giving that little bit, as, as you say, do you, do you put that on Joe Rogan? He's been in the news, so I'll just throw that name out. Or do you put that on Donald Trump? Or do you put that on, in other words, the arbiters of doubt? Or like, how do you try to make sense of it? So traditionally, I feel like the way that both you're supposed to relate to somebody who's having trouble and the way that is usually more successful is to come at it with compassion. Like this person needs more compassion. And I'm actually struggling with the fact that I'm not sure that that's true here. Um, not because I'm the worst doctor in the world, back off everybody. Um, but um, first of all, I'm struggling with the fact that I'm not sure how many people have compassion left. They're tired, people are really, really tired. Um, a lot has been asked and arguably too much. But I also think that we may have reached the end of what we can do with compassion. We may have to get to the point where I think people also really don't respond to vague. They don't respond to abstract. So I saw a lot more people take up the vaccine, not when I told them it was safe, not when all of my governing bodies such as ACOG and SMFM said it's a great idea for pregnant women, not when I sat and had a two hour conversation, not even when I told them that I just came from the ICU of a patient with a patient who had been intubated and was failing intubation and had her baby delivered early and was going on ECMO and would probably die. 
even that, nothing. Even when I can say to them, I can tell you that every patient I've taken care of like this, every single one has been unvaccinated. Every single one. And I can tell you the data supports that. The data supports that if you go next door right now and get a vaccine, that will prevent this from happening to you. That will prevent this from happening to your baby. It is so much safer for you to be vaccinated than for you to wait until you're not pregnant. And, and for a while I did do that and I'm still doing it. And there are people who will, that's enough. And that's a pleasure. That's my normal patient doctor relationship. There are other people who got the vaccine because they were gonna lose their job because it was concrete. This bad thing will happen, okay. Um, and I am at the point where I'm, I have gotten to the point where I can no longer have those two hour conversations. I just, I feel like at this point, and maybe it's not fair, most people have gotten the information they need to have. Most people are aware that the vaccine is safe. If they are not getting it, it's usually for another reason. And it's a reason that I actually cannot overcome in a conversation, whether it's one hour or two hours or three hours, and I don't have, I don't have it anymore. Um, what I am trying, and this is sort of new for me, is trying to make it really concrete. Did you know that if you have an, a baby in the NICU and you're positive for COVID, they won't let you visit the baby? Not at all. Zero. Because nobody COVID positive can go to the NICU because those babies are so fragile. Right? I've had patients. I admit a lot of patients with babies to the NICU because I do high-risk OB, a lot of preterm babies, a lot of sick babies. Um, and those moms are pumping for their babies in their hospital rooms, going home. They've never held their baby. Right? That, I think, might get me more traction. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if we've spent too much time dealing with abstract and compassion and trying to bridge and maybe need to be a little bit more matter of fact. And here are the concrete, um, you know, consequences of your of your actions. I don't know. I think that's the, I've struggled with that too. I mean, and I've talked with, you know, public health um, experts on here, including Esther Chernak, who has been on a lot of times. And, you know, she reminded me that public health officials have police powers for a reason. And, you know, it's not something you like to think that the state should have to exert, but the state exerts all kinds of power all the time. And to take it out of the realm of this sort of individual, individual decision, can an individual learn enough in this moment um, to try to make a decision uh, that affects their health? And then and the whole cascade, just to say, look, it's a mandate. Just don't worry about it. Stop thinking about it. And you, you trust all kinds of people who you don't understand what they do every day. Trust us. The way I'm describing it, I, every time I describe it this way, I'm like, yeah, it makes so much sense. And, and yet still. I, it's, not, it's not like I'm really excited about it, you know, going door to door and being like, let's jab everybody. But there's something about it that I just think we're not we're not winning. Um, we're not winning right. from with a with a war of compassion. And to be honest, it's costing a lot. Um so I don't know where I am. It doesn't mean I don't have compassion for my patients. It means I took very compassionate care of my patients in the ICU over the last month. Um, I just am not sure that it's the most effective way to, with the group that we have left, right? These are no longer the people who are just worried or these are no longer just the people who want to make sure it's FDA approved. The people that we have left now, I think, are pretty entrenched. They've dug their heels in. And I do think it might need to be just really concrete. But I, I don't know. Or it may just be that it's not winnable and humans are bad at this, which is kind of a hard way to think and a hard way to live. I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Javi Eve Karkowski. She's the author of High Risk Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected, which appeared with Norton in 2020. And Javi, in that book, you write very movingly. It's a great book. Everybody should read this book. Uh, and you write very movingly about maternal mortality 
And I wanted to sort of bring that back to COVID because you were just talking about um, the kind of truths you have to tell there. You're not going to be able to see your baby if the baby's in the NICU, for example. Um, are we, you know, we read these stories from time to time about, you know, mothers dying, um, you know, of COVID, pregnant mothers dying of COVID. I, those stories, I don't know, have any purchase on on the numbers? Is that something that's widespread? But even the the fear of it, once again, would be, I would think, powerful enough to really motivate people to get easy care to avoid a situation like that. Are you seeing much of this? So we, I thankfully have not had any maternal deaths in the that I am aware of. I think there are patients who have been readmitted postpartum and I would not necessarily know. Um, but I've had many, many patients in the ICU. Um, and, and the data supports that, right? We know that COVID is harder on a pregnant body. We know that. We know that patients who are pregnant are more likely to need to be hospitalized, more likely to need um, oxygen, more likely to need respiratory support, more likely to be intubated, more likely to die. Those are all sort of well proven in the data. And we're at the point now where it's not data that I had at the beginning. Last time I talked to you, I think I had a couple of series of 10, 15, 20 women. I now have thousands and thousands of series just on, sorry, thousands of, of research subjects, just pregnancy research subjects that I can really point to and say, we really do understand that this is true. Pregnant bodies are, have a harder time with COVID. It also, for those patients who are really reluctant to expose their fetus, I have to remind them of the first rule of high-risk OB, which I will tell you now, which is that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? If you get really, really sick, guess what? You are more likely to have preeclampsia. You're more likely to have preterm labor. You're more likely to have me deliver your baby premature because you are in the ICU and we're having trouble keeping you alive. And those are also true in the data too. I have to say, I just wrote a piece about how I've shared this with my patients. I've shared this with people in the effort to really bridge that gap. Um, and, and it was painful because some of them had just told me that I was parroting propaganda. That level of hostility was just very painful to me. And I've stopped sharing this. Um, I tell them the facts. I have developed tools that I, you know, provide to all of my physicians that I oversee so they can have this structured conversation. But somehow even the specter of really true badness happening for some people, it's just never enough. There was a patient I just saw, she herself had been admitted with COVID in the fall. So she probably had Delta, right? And I saw her in the beginning of Omicron and Omicron was everywhere. Half my nurses were out with it. Half my kids class was out with it. And I said to her, you know, you never got vaccinated. Let's do that right this second. So you get some protection. And she was like, she said to me, oh, COVID wasn't that bad. I was like, I'm looking at your admission and you were in the hospital for 11 days. You were on oxygen for 10 of them. You almost went to the ICU. Um, we almost delivered you. We didn't end up having to need to. Um, what part of this wasn't, wasn't, didn't make a mark, you know? Yeah, and what'd she say? I mean. She said, oh, the nurses all told me it's a, it's a lie. Something like that. I, I, I actually couldn't, I couldn't explore further because hmm. can you imagine that that was really personally painful to me? Like, yeah. um, it was, it was something about it was more than I could actually bear, which is unusual, right? I told you, patients don't owe me much. They don't owe me anything on an individual level. But there was a level at which she was calling me a liar when I shared my individual personal experiences. I have taken care of this. I will take care of it tomorrow, and I would really like to stop. And the fact that she couldn't hear that was was such a rejection. Like, I, I don't understand why you would trust me to adjust your insulin today. Do you know what I mean? Um, it was such a rejection of anything I have for her that I think it was actually harmful. It may be why I've stopped 
having these really overt conversations is because when I am rejected, it causes real damage to anything else I can do for them. Javi, do you think, how will we rebuild trust? And I'm thinking of that specific situation you're describing, but I'm also, I want to hear your perspective on society more, more generally, because trust has been broken in a million ways through this pandemic. How do we regroup? You know, it's really interesting because people make the analogy that, you know, you take care of patients who are alcoholics or drug addicts, or I don't know, you can make any number of smokers, obese, any number of things that are choices, right? I'm putting quotes on that because some of those things are not really choices. Um, and I don't hold it against them. And I think the real difference here was that, um, A, I was personally at risk. My family was personally at risk from these choices you're making, where the person who's an alcoholic is really making choices that largely affect themselves and their family. They won't affect my six-year-old, right? Um and I think the other thing is, is that that's what happens when something becomes global. The global aspect of it means that I can't get away from it. Um, the fact that you don't owe me a lot, but the little that you collectively owe us all is not being met is very, very hard to deal with. Um, I, I don't know how to rebuild trust in this situation. I, um, I think this is part of why I'm losing people to medicine, to be honest, I think because they can't see a way past it. And I think like any other time you lose trust, um, you lose so much more than just that conversation, right? You lose a million conversations that you'll never be able to have because that person is just done. Um, I would love to know how we move forward. If anyone has any great ideas, the thing that I'm doing right now is moving around it. I just don't have those conversations right now. And that in some ways is not the clinician I've always been, which is tremendously honest with my patients. It's just the clinician I am that can keep going right now. Let's talk a little bit about some of the changes that you've actually seen. Um, some of them may be research-driven or they're improvisation and practice-driven for pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Uh, you talked at the very beginning of our conversation today about having to write new protocols, um, and that's, I think, because you're a teacher is, as well. So you're constantly like taking the research, learning what needs to be the rules, making the rules, implementing the rules. It's a flow as I understand it, give us some uh, insight into what are the biggest changes as opposed to how you might have done your job in that setting in 2019. So because I'm really, you know, there's a ton of stuff that's happened on the inpatient side. We have so much more to offer patients who are really sick with COVID, um, whether it's a better understanding of how steroids work. I think we have more profound understanding of who remdesivir is and is not helpful for. And remdesivir is something that we do work with patients for. There were also therapies that we started being able to offer patients before they got really sick. And for me, especially in the outpatient world, that's really exciting because most people live outpatient, right? Very few people live in the hospital. We'd like to keep it that way. So anytime you find something you can get to people to keep them there in their homes, outside the hospital, that's A, something you really have to be able to have wide coverage for, otherwise you're not gonna to get to all the people who need it. And you really have to understand it or you're going to use it incorrectly. Um, so the first therapy that was like that was monoclonal antibodies. Um, and I don't know if you remember when that started to be a therapy where people would start to get it for mild or moderate COVID. Um, and for me, my patients need not just to know how to get it, where to get it, who's eligible, but we also need to think about, is it safe in pregnancy? If it's safe in pregnancy, can we talk about it in a way that makes it comfortable for you? Are the risks the same in pregnancy or different? And we did ultimately, and I'm really proud of this. I wrote a patient decision aid that went through the risks and benefits. Um, and we worked on a workflow and getting one of our infusion sites to feel comfortable treating pregnant women. I can't tell you how many times 
I work as a, I say that advocacy is a large part of my job because I will sometimes get to a point where I'm like, hey, I have this patient for you. She's super high risk. I want to send her to the infusion center. The infusion center will be like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't do that, right? And we can argue whether or not they're being protective or whether at some point that's discrimination. But ultimately, I need to have a partner that's willing to work with my patients in order to get them that care. Right now, what I'm really excited about is some of the outpatient therapeutics. Paxlovid is probably the most well-known that I'm waiting breathlessly for. I just wrote up a protocol, even though I cannot get Paxlovid these days for love or money, but when I can, we are ready um, so that I can talk about it with my patients. And again, there's very little info on um, Paxlovid in pregnancy, but I can tell you, well, it's been used in HIV in pregnancy, very similar drug for many years. Can we use that information to help us think about what to worry about? And then can we use what we know about COVID in pregnancy, about the women who do get so sick to help us make that risk-benefit assessment that feels right for you? And I am excited about the ability to bring this to my patients and to my doctors so that we can really make an effect in a larger community. One more big issue I wanted to get to in the in the time that we have left. Um, you wrote a, another piece. Again, I don't know how you're finding time to do it, but you helped me understand a bit of what the writing does for you. You wrote a piece in The Atlantic that appeared in September uh, about the Texas abortion case, which is about to be Supreme Court. Um, you know, it's going to dominate uh, all of our discussion around the courts, I think, as we go into this year. And the title is Another Extremist Law That Americans Have to Live With. So I would really like to know from your perspective as an obstetrician who deals with high-risk pregnancy, your perspective on that law and what you think it portends for the future in America. You know, I think what people don't really understand is that um, termination of pregnancy isn't the first question in prenatal care. It's like the zeroth question, right? It's the question that's underneath all the other questions. People don't realize that a lot of the way prenatal care is built in this country, actually worldwide, is actually about um, if somebody needs or, or wants to terminate, how can we get them that information quickly? It's why your ultrasounds are scheduled when they are. It's why your blood tests are scheduled when they are for first trimester. Um, for me, very specifically, I will often take care of patients who um, are all of a sudden entered into a high-risk pregnancy. Their water breaks when they're 20 weeks. Their pregnancy has just become one that is almost definitely not going to end with a live or healthy baby. Um, I can wait until they get infected. I can wait until they get septic. But the right thing to do is to offer them a termination of pregnancy today, right now, before any of that happens. And under that Texan law, I'm not sure that that I can, and I'm not sure that if I do that, they won't like, you know, come in and do whatever, sue me for $10,000 times 100 people who care. Um, and I think that moment of hesitation, even if it's not, even if I don't change my practice, if I stop and think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm gonna lose my minivan. I don't think you want me to hesitate like that when I'm taking care of you or your wife or your sister. I think these laws are largely written by people who've, who've never honestly, um, inhabited a body that has a uterus and they've almost never understood what pregnancy can ask of a human. And I think if they grappled with that properly, they would be more thoughtful. These are very thoughtless laws. Um, and I do think that they are going to lead to somebody dying. Do you think the courts have the capacity to be thoughtful in the way that you've described? Are you hopeful at all that you know, this, this law or similar laws will ultimately be struck down? Or where do you think things are going? I'm not a political analyst. I think, for example, Sonia Sotomayor gives me hope because she just 
says it like she sees it, and I appreciate that. Um, I think that having representation of women who know women or have been affected by reproductive life can be helpful. Representation does matter. But I ultimately think that this is not going the way I want. But I want to say this. It's not going the way most Americans want. Most Americans don't want this kind of reproductive law across the board, no exceptions for rape or incest, something like 60, 70% of Americans don't agree with this law. But the tribalism, and this is very similar to the vaccine stuff that we're talking about, we end up somewhere we don't want to be. We end up together somewhere that we find unacceptable, that we find sort of intolerable. And I don't know how to get out of it. When I look around, all of us are looking at each other. You and I both don't want our kids doing lockdown drills, but here we are. You and I both don't want Half of our, you know, half of the people in my neighborhood to be unvaccinated, but here we are. And you and I both don't want the 14-year-old I just took care of, right, who's cognitively impaired. I would really like her to have some options. And I think you do too. But you didn't think about her, and here we are. So just a quick reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time most weekdays. And I've been talking today, really an honor to get a second opportunity to talk with Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski. And you'll definitely want to grab her book. And um, the book is titled High Risk, Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected. And that is, um, it's a real pre-COVID book. I mean, we talked about this last time. You know, it came out right when the pandemic was starting. So um, we're going to need your second book uh, to come pretty soon, Javi. I don't know when you're going to have time to do that, but I'm already looking forward to it. Thanks a million for your time today. I really love talking with you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.